Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Schulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5, Episode 18, Point of No Return. Let's get this show on the road. Hi, everyone. Due to the nature of this episode, we will be discussing suicidal ideations. If that's not something you want to hear us discuss, you can skip this episode, either for now or entirely, we don't mind. We just want you to feel safe and take care of yourself. Pardon me, future Drew, this is where I need you to put in the marching band and the fireworks and the celebration music. It wasn't a punch in the dick, but a angel's blade through the bottom of his jaw, taking out my arch nemesis of the series... Oh, the vindication. I'm so happy. I want to make this an entire segment, but I can't. Honestly, for me, it's kind of like a footnote. Like it it, <laughs> it fits like barely into the long game and that's about it. I'm just happy that he's got his comeuppance. He's so bloody deserved it. I almost wanted to see the actual comeuppance, which would have been like the whole deal. We'll get to it later with Dean, I'm sure, with the deal he, he wanted to make. But like Michael getting it, freaking, I mean, fucking Zachariah getting it. Oh, so good. Yes, I'm very happy about that. Although I have to say, I definitely forgot about it. (laughs) Uh, Before we get the episode started, I also want to mention that this is the 100th episode of Supernatural that we're covering, uh, which means that between all of the specials and the minisodes, this is actually our 120th podcast episode. We just really wanted to say thank you to every single person who's been listening and everybody who supports us on Coffee or Patreon. And again, if you're looking for other ways to help us out or you want to help us out and don't feel like spending money or can't afford to put it towards a podcast right now, which totally is understandable, easiest and best way to support us is a rating on Spotify or a review on Apple Podcasts. Let people know why you listen to the show and why you've listened to us for 120 episodes. I guess this sort of makes the podcast like officially bingeable now. (laughs) 40 is bingeable. 120 is like... (laughs) It's sizable, sizable. It's like a binge weekend, 120. Is there even 120 hours in a weekend? That's that's a week. That's a whole week. <laughs> you can put it on two times speeds. I can sound like Alvin the Chipmunk. Or I can talk as fast as I do in my recaps. I was going to say, like, does, would you even be able to, to listen to the recap on 2x speed? Because I already do it on 2x speed. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to try? <laughs> oh my god, no. But I can definitely do a recap if you count me down. Three, two, one, go. Adam is back from the grave because they've decided, okay, he's just like, you know, good enough, I guess. And then that whole thing leads to like an interaction with like him as an actual brother. Because the first time we're actually getting Adam for real and not as a weird monster clone doppelganger thingy. And Dean's all like, well, screw it. I'm going to go get sacrificed and be Michael's meat puppet. And then Adam's like, no, I'll go be the meat puppet. And Sam's like, I have to deal with both these idiots. And Bobby's also like, I'll deal with these idiots. But they're you know, more mobile and more advanced and able to get away from me than I can't stop them. And then Zach, uh, Zachariah does finally get Adam. And Adam's all like, I'm ready to save the day and see my mom. And he's all like, yeah, I lied to you. You're just bait to get uh, the important one. You're worthless to me. Go cough up some blood. Dean and Sam show up. They save the day. Cass is there too. He does some pretty awesome stuff and saves the day and now he's missing. And then Sakurai gets what's fucking coming to him. Time. Oh, and we lose Adam. I don't want to say anything, but I'm assuming if it's relevant, you'll bring it up. I don't know if Adam's actually gone. That's the whole question at the end. Because it's a question that's left. Like, it's not for sure. 
there's the part of me where I would expect you to be like, okay, well, Adam's just like, that was it. He was back for an episode and he's gone. Or like he's in the ether. He's now just like a piece on the chessboard we're ignoring for a bit. Until who knows what happens. Honestly, this one I'm just going to leave open because we don't really know at this point. But shall we head to the long game? Because I'm sure there's plenty of things I need to be reminded of. So like you said, Adam is back and, you know, like back from the dead back, meaning that this is actually the first time that we really meet Adam and not like ghoul Adam, basically making him like a true Winchester, like coming back from the dead. Oh, family tradition. There's also a point where Adam is giving Sam attitude and Sam goes, tell you one thing, attitude like that, you'd fit right in around here. Because we've seen Dean act this way and we've seen Sam act this way and now we're seeing Adam act this way. And I really wonder what could be the possible common denominator here. Yeah, I I mean, I don't think we get into Adam much this episode because really he doesn't do much other than kind of act as like a MacGuffin. I mean, he is a plot device more than a character in his own so in, the, so in this moment, I will say he kind of really feels like a weird blend of Sam and Dean in a lot of ways. Like there's a little bit of both in there. The cool thing is that we're getting to see a little bit like what traits would be closer to John and what traits would be closer to Mary, I guess. Oh, true. We get the absolute iconic Cass and Dean fight scene, which is really just Cass wailing on Dean in an alleyway and like screaming at him. Yeah, we'll talk about that one later. Uh, We're back in the beautiful room or the green room, depending on how you want to call it. And just a reminder, we do have an episode dedicated to looking at all the paintings featured in that room called The Art in the Green Room. And if that interests you, uh, you can go and listen to it because it's a lot of fun. Fun fact, I'm not on that episode. I've only been able to listen to half of it because apparently it gets into spoiler territory. So I have to wait another, what, like five years before I can listen to the whole thing? You are barred from listening to that episode. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of which, the beautiful room is located in an abandoned muffler factory in Van Nuys, California. Yeah, that was like completely random and bizarre. That really just feels to me like unless there's more to it, we're going to get to down the road. It really just feels like this is a spot we can film and that no one's going to make us pay much money for. I had started writing like a, a critical time analysis about like the loss of magic of certain things, uh, whether it's demons or locations or creatures or whatnot, like throughout the series of Supernatural. But we just don't have time to get into that because there was something else. But we'll have so many other opportunities to talk about that, especially I would say like during seasons, like starting season eight, we're going to have a lot of of things to talk about with regards to that. Cass uses himself as like an angel repellent, and this is something that we'll see coming up again in later seasons, like the idea of carving a Nokian into one's chest. It does mean that we're not sure what happened to Cass at this point. And I, you know, I'm thankful that they brought it up again to at least be like conversational a little bit when they mentioned like we don't know where Cass is or he's likely out of commission, because all we know about that is it banishes them. But like where to? I don't think Cass is going back to heaven every time that happens because I don't think they'd really appreciate seeing him there that often. I mean, either way, if that is where he is banished, then it's really, it must be like something for him to get back out, right? If we find out what that is, I'd also just accept the fact that it's like a complete random like location. Like, oh, it's like this random crossroads in like Georgia uh, near a bar. Like it's just, that's the spot. No one knows why it just is. That's where angels get banished to for no reason. Bye-bye, Zachariah. Just an absolute amazing moment for all Supernatural fans everywhere. 
Like I literally in that moment sitting here in the dark in my basement alone late at night watching it jumped out of my seat and cheered. <laughs> I had to rewind to see what I missed. And I made every round far enough to watch it again. He's <laughs> just watching it on a loop. I love it. <laughs> knife goes in, knife comes out. Knife goes in, knife comes out. Yeah, Adam is like, we're not sure, actually. But he stays in the beautiful room. And I hate to say it, but I really think that Adam is much more of a plot device than his own character in this episode, like kind of like what I had mentioned earlier. And that's really evident in the actual storyline, too. Like, that's literally what is done to him by the angels. It's unfortunate for us as a viewer, but I think it helps exemplify what the angels saw him as. Exactly. I think, like, there's a reason for that. I just, I know that there are some people who absolutely adore Adam. And so, like, I think it would be, it would have been cool to to see a little bit more of him and not of him being manipulated. Keeping that in mind... Uh, because he doesn't have that much agency in this episode and it's all, and again, like we mentioned, it is the first time that we meet him and not the ghoul version of him. I I just want to highlight that he is like spitting some facts about family throughout the episode, especially at one point when he says like, John Winchester was some guy who took me to a baseball game once a year. I don't have a dad. So we may be blood, but we are not family. My mom is my family. And if I do my job, I get to see her again. So no offense, but she's the one I give a rat's ass about, not you. So here, like, I just want to mention, I guess, that clearly it looks like the angels are using the same tactic as the Whore of Babylon from 99 Problems, which is like promising people that they can see their dead loved ones again if they do their bidding, essentially. Zachariah's lying piece of shit and I'm dead. But do you think he would have actually let? Why? <laughs> I just wanted to be, I just wanted to get it on the table. Like let's bash him one more time while we have a chance. <laughs> and with that, story time. Today our theme is milestones. The word milestones does not actually come from the Latin, but it is an ancient Roman concept. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> We can never escape. So basically the ancient Romans used to put like rocks at every mile on their roads. They were basically the very first like mile markers on roads. And that's really where the idea of a milestone comes from. Of course, it still has that meaning today, but it can also mean like just any event marking a significant moment in development. What I do find interesting is that it kept the concept of the road moving forward like it's it's a moment an important moment in a progression or like in a development so like there's this forward motion which is super fitting for supernatural like given the meta importance i guess of like the road like whether it's the all-american highway or the road as like the journey that the brothers are on or even like the axis monday that we were talking about so this is the hundredth episode Milestones, I think we can go ahead. I would actually argue that the biggest shift or change in Sam this episode isn't so much like how he behaves, but like how he's perceived. And we'll get to that with Dean, because obviously like for him to be perceived, we need to talk about how other people do perceive him. So we'll get to Dean later. But like my whole argument about Sam for this episode is that he's been changing over the season and we've been noticing some changes and we even remarked on them a couple a couple episodes ago. He has become a little more altruistic. He stopped doing things as an attempt to like save himself or make himself feel better or make himself like karmically balanced. 
he's actually doing the good thing because it's the right thing to do. I feel like there's kind of the pessimistic side that he's kind of like accepted that he'll never like fully balance out, but that he can at least do good while he's here. And we finally see him at a point where he has really become a Sam who is altruistic is the best word for it, in my opinion. For me also, it's how on the ball he is, especially in this episode. Like he's really seeing things for what they are. I'm thinking about like that moment where he says, look, no way. After everything that's happened, all that crap about destiny, suddenly the angels have a plan B. Does that smell right to anybody? No. But at this moment, everybody is pulling in different directions. Like Dean is telling Cass to blow him. Cass is completely silent after that. And so is Bobby actually. And Adam is trying really hard to leave Bobby's house. Yeah, you got a lot of players who don't want to play or they want to play their own games. (laughs) Dean and Adam are literally pulling Sam in different directions, but he's really staying focused on like the patterns that he's seeing. And to me, like that's a very Sam thing. Uh, That's one of the things that I really love about this character, actually, that he's really able to discern and like judge what is happening in front of him. Yeah. This again kind of brings up the whole, like Sam is always right. Joke. The, the sense that seems to become more accurate, the better of a person he's being. So like now that we're seeing him become more altruistic and less self-serving, he's often a little more analytical and he's a little smarter so that always being right thing is starting to pay off a bit more. What do you mean always right? It basically, this season, anytime he's had a hunch about something or anytime he's like questioned something, he's generally been in the right. I know we've joked that Sam is always right before and it's kind of an acute thing we said. And I think we clearly disproved that with uh, some demons. For me, whenever I think like character is always right, I think Dean because of season four, because of the way that like he's able to read like situations. Season four to me is like where we like lost that jokey catchphrase with Sam because he was so incorrect. And I think we're finally starting to see it kind of reemerge. And now that he is no longer self-serving, he's like kind of doing it for the good of the world. Uh, he's letting his smarts work for the world, not for himself. He's back to kind of being right. You know, there was like this tipping point where he feels less like the sidekick again. Uh, which is a very strange argued between him and Dean because it's always sort of felt like they were supposed to be equals, but Dean clearly always was the leader. And I think the whole parental role he played kind of had that moment. But like this week, we're really, I'm really, I I think we've been feeling it. There's been hints of it, but this is kind of the milestone for Sam where I feel like he is now putting his foot down as an equal and not as someone to be protected. I completely agree with you. I also really loved that, like on a more, like on on a less serious note, I really love that Sam had to deal with like Sam level sassiness from Adam. (laughs) Yes. Like I, I liked that it sort of put him in the position of actually being a big brother and having to deal with a younger, less experienced point of view who thinks that he knows everything because like, that's what his dynamic with Dean had been for a very long time. And so like, he's getting to see what that feels like. He's getting like that tiny sneak peek at what Dean has had to deal with for the past 26 years or so. And I think it's important because he also gets to interact with Adam when he's in a completely different headspace than when he had previously thought he was interacting with him in Jump the Shark. And I think that you you really see how much Sam has changed between those two episodes when you compare the two interactions. Interesting to like look back at those interactions and really kind of see the difference. I think a bit of a writing tool here was giving the 
the cart the giving the like demons are real you know about them card early to adam so that that was kind of out of the way so they could interact more honestly with each other but i also feel like in the world of milestones it's kind of like a symbolic milestone here a little bit in what i'm describing as kind of this evolution for sam into not the little brother but to the equal to dean or that's kind of like where he's i feel like he's reaching or has reached in this episode that one of the things he would have to do to earn that is deal with an annoying little brother. <laughs> like, you can't be equal to Dean until you've dealt with all of Dean's trials, and this is one of them, clearly. I like that a lot, actually. And I agree. I mean, that's that's basically what it is. And I think that, like, the past few episodes have been, like, I mean, you called it, you called it very aptly, like, the, the trials of Dean, I think is what you said, or something like that. But, yeah, I think, like, the past few episodes for Sam have been, like, an exercise in empathy with Dean because he's never really, I guess, stopped to think about Dean and like his role in that family dynamic. I think he was very concerned with his own, which is totally fine. It's like the normalization of it a little bit to be completely candid and off book for a minute. I actually had a interaction with somebody the other day talking about just like growing up and life and just like, it was my hairdresser, new hairdresser. We're just shooting the shit and to know each other. And she made a comment about growing up with a very, like, significantly huge age gap between her and her eldest sibling and how her eldest sibling was very much apparent to her and her siblings. I tiptoed around it because I felt weird trying to, like, outright say, we do a podcast where we point out how terrible parent vindication like this is. Because for her, it was a totally, like, normal and positive thing. So for Sam, who's never known otherwise... You know, we on the outside looking in understand how terrible it is and the trauma associated with it. But to Sam, it's normalized. And so I think that this is like an exercise in in kind of like putting that back into question and being like, hold on a second. Like, this is what you've had to do since you were four years old. Wow. OK. I think that that's kind of like where where we are for for Sam. And and I think we also need to talk about like the generational curse breaking that he's doing in this episode, like specifically with regards to that. Like the fact that he takes Dean with him to the beautiful room, knowing that Dean is tempted to say yes to Michael. And like he tells him that like he knows that when push comes to shove, he's going to make the right choice. Like this is something that was never afforded to Sam. And I think that's why it moves me so much because he was never encouraged to make his own choices. Uh never trusted to make his own choices. And he, he actively chooses not to reproduce that when he's in a situation where he easily could, he could have said like, no, Dean, you don't get to make this decision. I do. And I would understand if he had chosen to do that, because I would understand that it's like a response to, to the, the, the stress of the situation, but he very courageously chooses not to do that. And so I, I just, I love, I love my tallest bean for that. This again, with the term of milestones is very much a milestone in the Sam Redemption arc of proving that he is still a great hunter and a great person. And like, I 1000% in that moment where he turns to Dean and like, Dean's like, well, it's clearly a trap. And Sam goes, I know. I was going to go, so you're not coming with us. And then he goes, but you're coming with. And I was like, excuse me? Like, I'm actually taken aback by this. And then like, obviously looking at it now, you're 100% right. This really was Sam saying, I'm breaking this chain. I'm not going to do this. I know better than you think. He's, no, no, no. You are amazing and you know what you're doing. And I trust you implicitly. 
Yeah, I feel like he's basically at a point in his life where like he no longer makes reactionary decisions, which is like huge for anybody, really. But especially for somebody like Sam with the kind of trauma that he carries. I'm just, I I mean, I'm shocked of all things that we did not get the incredibly obvious line in this episode, which would have been after Dean's I don't trust you or I don't believe in you. Sorry, was the line Dean used. I was expecting Sam to turn around and give it to Dean saying like, well, you may not believe in me, but I believe in you. And though it was not said, I feel like it was implied heavily in this episode. I mean, this is an episode that's been written by Jeremy Carver. And so, like, I would expect the writing to be a little bit more sophisticated than that. So I'm very glad that we didn't get that line. But uh, but we got the message through other lines and through other action. Yeah. Again, sign of good writing. You The obvious line is there. You don't use it, but you get the implication across. Good for you. Oh, mwah. chef's kiss. Speaking of kisses, shall we get, I don't know why that's my segue to Dean, but actually, you know what? It is my segue to Dean. We'll get to that later, I assume. Oh, Dean. Dean is going through some stuff in this episode. I think that that's really an understatement. I'm going to get it out of the way now. Like my interpretation of what Dean is going through is basically that like he wants to die in this episode. And I'm, I'm sure that folks, or at least some folks would say like, no, that's not really what's going on. He really does just want to say yes to Michael because he thinks it's for the best. And I think that you could argue that point, but I'm just not going to, because I'm really reminded of the episode in Croatoan in season two, when Dean tells Sam, like, I'm tired, Sam, I'm tired of this job, this life, this weight on my shoulders, man, I'm tired of it. And then there's again in Red Sky at Morning in season three, when he says, truth is, I'm tired, Sam. And I don't know, it's like there's a a light at the end of the tunnel. And of course, that was, you know, him dying and going to hell. That was the light at the end of the tunnel, which Sam very, you know, replied like it's hellfire. So anyway, and then in this episode, we have this little bit of dialogue where Dean goes, I'm serious. I mean, I think about how many people we've gotten killed, Sam. Mom, dad, Jess, Joe, Ellen, should I keep going? And Sam replies, well, it's not like we pulled the trigger. And Dean replied, we might as well have. I'm tired, man. I'm tired of fighting who I'm supposed to be. In these three episodes, Sam is basically like what I want to say is that the the words that he's using in these three different episodes and three different seasons are always the same. And so far, every time that he's had these kinds, he's used those words we've always like really linked it to suicidal ideation. And I think that that's like, so I I don't see why we would do it differently in this episode. So that's, that's the direction that I'm going in, in story time anyway. So in the, in those three episodes, Sam was always able to remind him that he needs him and that it's important for Dean to stay because of Sam. And I remember And I remember at one point we were wondering if it was just like Sam adding to that burden of responsibility, but I think I would say that it's really his way of like anchoring Dean back to his life and be like, I know you're tired, but let's go one more mile. Uh, Let's reach that next milestone. And I, I, I think that with everything that Dean has gone through in the last few episodes, knowing that Sam is there and that he's not leaving is basically what keeps him going. I am with you. This entire goodbye tour he goes on, the opening of him, like gift boxing all of his things in this very emotional way. Like if that doesn't scream the visual indicators, at least in film language of someone about to take their own life, I don't know what does. He even started writing the note. I mean, it was clear 
the choice of what he was doing. Like, though his choice wasn't, I'm ending my life. Within the supernatural universe, the ramifications of what he was doing are the same. Dean's sadly been headed down this road for quite some time, as you pointed out. And it's really been mostly Sam that's acted as kind of a guardrail for him to keep him off that out of that ditch. And I'm just going to keep going with car metaphors this week, apparently. Well, I mean, with this in mind, I think it's important to talk about the shift in the way that Dean perceives Sam. Because I think that that's really the heart of this episode. And it's it's really crucial to what's about to happen in the rest of the season. So the episode starts off with Dean being absolutely flabbergasted that Sam found him. But Dean has found Sam multiple times when he was hiding. He also makes a comment about how like Sam can stop him if he's not hopped up on demon blood, which like personally, I found a really cheap way to try to get Sam to get mad. But like, it is what it is. Uh, That's just Dean who's hurting. Sam did find him and he brought Cass with him to make sure that like they could bring Dean back to Bobby's. And I think that those two things are kind of hinting at the fact that like Dean is completely underestimating Sam. Like I kind of see two angles of this and I don't think either one is clearly the correct one, but I do want to cover both real quick, which is, is it really him doubting Sam could find him the way that he's been able to find Sam like underestimating or was it letting Sam find him because there's part of him that I feel like if Dean really wanted to not get caught, he would not do the usual things that him and Sam would do. Like, it almost feels like he wanted to get caught, which is a weird implication to kind of change how we're viewing things. It doesn't really work, in my opinion, with the way that like Jensen is acting out that scene. He there is genuine surprise there. It's not like, oh, he found me or like, oh, he found me. Like, there's no relief. There's no it's just surprise. So that's why I didn't go there. But I think it could have been a way to approach this episode. But again, like I said, I'm not going down that road because I that's not how I see it. Not because it might not be, but I just don't see it that way. No, and I think I tend to side with you more. I just I think it was one that I wanted to bring up because it it kind of seemed very glaring. And I like just to have all those things up in the air and like said aloud. Uh, but ultimately, you're right. It really does feel like and again, I feel like this is part of the Sam evolution I brought up earlier to give Sam some more credit here of here. He is graduating from little brother to equal by doing something that Dean would otherwise do, which I think is what catches Dean more off guard than anything else is that, oh, he's good enough to do the thing I would do. Because he, clearly he's done it before. And even going as far as outsmarting him in the, you know, I didn't bring demon blood, but I brought your angel boyfriend to kick your ass. Sam is on the ball. Like, let's talk about the moment where Dean says that he doesn't believe in Sam. He says that he thinks Sam is going to abandon him, like either for demon blood or being seduced by power. Mentions a demon chick, but really like it's that's what it is, like seduced by power. And I think that the fact that he was like just reminded in Dark Side of the Moon of the times where Sam left him during their formative years is playing a really important part here because like Dean has this really deep-seated fear of abandonment and like right now to quote Dr. Taylor Allison Swift uh, with his depression working the graveyard shift he's just completely terrified. I love that you did that thank you. I know Sam is very level-headed and very analytical and very smart and I know that we've kind of gotten off a season before this where he was a lot more impulsive and kind of angry. And we've been seeing a much better shift towards his kind of calm and collected and smart side. 
But this to me feels like in any other episode would have been the tipping point for like, I'm walking out on you or like screw this moment. And the fact that he doesn't is just says so much. Yeah. I completely agree with you. Like if, if this had been said to him, I think it would have broken him completely, but it didn't. And he responded by trusting Dean, like his reaction, like how we discussed earlier is not one of John Winchester. Like it's not rooted in trauma. It's not reactionary. It's what he thinks is right. And that to me is the point of no return in this episode. It's the moment where Dean realizes that Sam isn't the same Sam from season four, that like he's not the same Sam from their childhood. He's an adult. He's an equal. And that really has the potential of changing up the dynamic. Like if Sam can also change the way he perceives himself. I think that's the biggest thing here is as much as we we kind of end off with Dean seeing Sam in a new light, which I think was ultimately like, I think even in like episode one of this season, I brought up the fact that like what's the ultimate, what Sam ultimately wants is to be on equal footing with Dean and Dean wants to see him as an equal, but they can't fix their dynamic yet. This to me feels like that milestone moment. This to me feels like, like you said, the point of no return of Dean now sees Sam as more than just a little brother. He has now graduated him to this like higher level. But Sam also sees it in himself. Well, I don't know if Sam sees it in himself yet, because I think that sometimes like when you are making some big changes in the way that you approach life, yes, sometimes like because you're thriving towards something and sometimes you have to fake it until you make it. And so I, I don't know that Sam truly sees himself as changed, but I think he is definitely acting the part. And that's why I'm saying like, the, the dynamic can only change if one, Dean sees the change and recognizes it. And two, if Sam also recognizes it and accepts this change. I, I understand where you're coming from, but I think you also touched on something very much there that I think is it better exemplifies what I'm trying to get across, which is while Sam, if you asked him like to verbally confirm, like, do you feel like this has been a change? I don't think he would say it, but he's acting it. Isn't that what I said? <laughs> that's what you said. I'm repeating it because that's what I truly feel. You words good. I words less good. I use your words to words better. And I'm doing hand puppets here still. <laughs> Do we want to talk about Cass a little bit? Tell me about Cass a little bit. Yeah. I I don't actually have that much to say about Cass this week, but I I, I guess we have to comment on like him beating up Dean in the alleyway because like, I love a good fictional toxic relationship, but like, and, and, and like this was next level, right? Like the dialogue says it all. Like, like I rebelled for this. Uh, so you could surrender to them. I gave everything for you. And this is what you give to me. Like it really shows where Cass is at this point. Like he's too far deep into helping the Winchesters, you know, the Winchesters uh, quote, his entire existence and survival like really depends on this. And again, like he's remember in the first or second episode of season five, where like we were saying, you know, I gave everything. He says, he makes a comment about you, but he's like, the two Winchesters are in the room, but he's like staring at Dean and the framing is just so close and intimate. And here he's doing this again, where it's like, Oh, I gave everything for the Winchesters. Like I gave everything for you, but like, he's literally like, holding on to Dean, like pressing his body against like the wall of an alleyway. 
anyway, it's very homoerotic. And Dean, like, replies to this, like, do it, just do it, which again, like, shows his desire to die, I think, in that moment, right? This is also kind of what made me think about the point earlier with Sam, where he kind of, like, wanted to be caught, theoretically, or potentially, that, like, he wants to be stopped from doing this. Like, he thinks it's the only option, and he wants to be stopped, but I think this one more so is more of a, I just want it to be over, whether that be giving myself to Michael or something else, just end it, which is way more difficult. Yeah, because I don't, that's the thing. That's what makes me say that it's not really about, you know, saying yes to Michael. It's about ending his life. And 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 here's the thing. It's not, I, I don't think he truly wants to end his life. I think he, he wants to end his suffering. And those are, are obviously separate. Sometimes people think that the only way to stop suffering is to stop your life and there you go that's where we are for dean like we've seen him go like nuts on angels even in this episode he takes a quite a few of them very impressively but to see him go full rage like this to really just let his truth out and how angry he is at dean for what he's doing i i again fictional toxic relationship i don't approve this in any other scenario than fiction but like it does speak volumes in the like way of cheesy tv writing yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, like Dean is very much is afraid of abandonment, but like by by wanting to die, I think Cass is seeing it as him being abandoned by Dean. He's adopted abandonment issues from Dean. <laughs> he has adopted a lot of things from Dean. Abandonment issues are indeed one of them. <laughs> Can we end with one real positive note though for Cass? And that would be the moment when uh Dean is in the bunker and he says, last time someone looked at me like that, I got laid. And then nothing happens and they just move on. I have some thoughts about that that I'm going to talk about in critical time. I will I will say now, I wrote this before realizing that was your, your subject, so I stopped myself with just that. And I am so excited to get to critical time. For, for continuity's sake, the writer of this episode is Jeremy Carver and the director was Phil Scritchia. I don't think we need to dive any more into that. Just, I mean, the writing this episode. We, we've gone over the highlights already, but wow. Well, this is one of those like notable supernatural episodes, I think. But I am genuinely surprised we did not save this for a live watch of all episodes. Yeah, it's a scheduling issue because of the holidays and everything. Like, I think had this one been on the docket for a potential Let's Watch, it would have been like an immediate choice. Do you want to tell us a story from the Hunter's Journal? Let's crack it open. So, this hunt did not go how I planned. And I don't make plans. I'm the winged kind of guy. My last hunting partner, she knew how to keep organized. I never really got it, but hey, shit worked. So. Today I had a plan. Did any of it go accordingly? <laughs> Not even a little. Uh, but I still have managed to get this demon trapped and ready for an exorcism. The issue is this giant shard of glass sticking out of my throat, which is making my Enochian a little hard to understand. Doesn't really do the job. My head is spinning. A combination of trying to figure out what the hell my next move is and probably the blood loss too. When I hear a voice in my ear, as clear as a bell, I can hear this little voice tell me what I must do, like an angel whispering to me that it'll be all right, except it's suggesting I murder an innocent child to get rid of this demon. I know it's wrong. Killing children? Pretty much always wrong. But here I am, 
kind of a bit stuck for options with a literal messenger of the cloud club upstairs whispering sweet nothings into my ear that it's for the greater good. At this point, I'd be curious to hear what the demon on the other shoulder would say. Actually, scratch that. Probably be even worse. So, sending a text to an old hunting partner and take a seat while I tend to my injury. Maybe she's planned for just such an occasion and maybe she can save my butt one more time. No hidden message in this episode. Uh, well, I mean, you know, we did we did watch an episode where there were a lot of very clear messages, so very on theme. <laughs> and I believe there's a very fun uh, section coming up now. What do you have to share with us this week? Well, like, listen, I feel like I blabbered on a lot in story time, so I want to keep it, like, short and sweet for for here. But, like, Dean is really openly sexual with Cass in this episode. Like... Just snaps, snaps all around, snaps all around. <laughs> but it's true, like in a way that we don't usually see in Supernatural, like, because not all, obviously, but like a lot of the things that we notice with regards to like the queer coding of their relationship, it is in the subtext, right? But this is like really in the text. Bold and underlined. <laughs> Bold and underlined. Like there's the whole like, all right, you know what? Blow me, Cass. And then there's the, well, Cass, not for nothing, but the last person who looked at me like that. I got laid. And then there's like also the moment in the alleyway, which I know is not inherently sexual, but really gives off like massive homoerotic vibes where like he's beating him up. So anyway, like this is an unusual episode, I think, in the way that like Dean is openly saying sexual things to Cass. If I had to explain it in universe, because obviously like I think people know at this point that like to me, this relationship is a queer romance like to begin with a queer sexual romance but anyway but if I had to explain it like in universe as to how Dean is feeling in the moment I think I would say that like since Dean is in the moment where he wants to die like he doesn't really care all that much about the repercussions of what he's doing so he's like what's the worst that's gonna happen like that he's really gonna blow me like maybe that's not so bad after all you know so like if we go back to this line about being tired of fighting who he's supposed to be I know that this has to do with like the status as like Michael's vessel but as a queer person hearing this line like I can't help but think and, and read it as a him wanting to be his authentic self. And part of that authentic self is queer. Like it really has that vibe of like, I'm removing my filters because I don't care anymore. There is no repercussions because after tomorrow, I'm a meat puppet and this is all over. Like it makes sense to me that like, you know, like to put it into a more realistic scenario, who here has ever left a job they really didn't like and they knew they were burning that bridge. So they got to, you know, speak their mind a little bit or kind of give people the, you know, say the things they wouldn't be normally saying because there was no repercussions. So we know that Dean tried the end of the world line with last night on earth line with Cass. So I feel like this is just a different version of it. Oh, yeah. No, I think this is very much very similar vein. Do we want to go listen to what our community has to say? Let's go. This week, we have a message from Karen. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us a recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, what do you think of Sam saying he was wrong to leave Dean every single time? for our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala Talk. 
Hi, Marie. Hi, Drew. My name is Karen. I'm, uh, and hi, everyone else as well. Uh, my name is Karen. I am calling or messaging you, I guess, from Central Canada. I am coming your way very soon. Uh, I'll be arriving shortly after Pride, unfortunately, uh, to visit a friend for a week who uh, they are working on the new screen movie. So fingers crossed I get to at least visit the set. It's unlikely, but fingers crossed. Um, if you have any secret gems you'd like to re recommend about Montreal, um, I would love to take them. Uh, but I'm not actually sending this for recommendations. I'm sending this to talk about Supernatural. In particular, um, busty Asian beauties. So a couple of years ago in one of my rewatches, I think it was the one in preparation for the, um, the finale. <laughs> <laughs> I um sort of made this just like connection. I don't remember what triggered it or or where it kind of came from, but I started thinking about John being a Vietnam vet and Dean's obsession with busty Asian beauties. In having grown up in the the eighties and nineties. Dean learned about sex through media, uh, likely through one random sex ed class he may have managed to attend where they put a condom on a banana, uh, but he likely got exposed to it through his father's porn collection, which, you know, is a pretty used trope, particularly through media, um, before the internet, uh, and internet porn became a whole thing, young kids, particularly young boys, would steal or sneak to look at their father, their uncle, their older brother's porn collection. John fought in the Vietnam War. John went on leave from the Vietnam War, most likely, and spent time in Asian community, uh, in cities in Asia, where, you know, American soldiers fetishized women, where they were used as objects, um, as, um, sexual, you know, ugh, it's just, it's just, it's awful. But, uh, you can't tell me that he didn't come back home from Vietnam and suddenly have this interest in magazines like Busty Asian Beauties. And you cannot tell me that Dean did not get that obsession and that fetish and that, you know, interest in Asian porn from his father, that he didn't learn that behavior in the same way that he learned so many other things about, you know, being a man and, and how to be the right kind of man from his father. And that includes that exploitative talk of women, the using them um, the, the way Justine talks about women, you know, you've talked about it, that it's, it's very like, um, intense performance, <laughs> performance of masculinity. Uh, and I, I just really kind of enjoy making that connection because it reminds me, uh, of how Dean really is so much a product of his raising. Um, and, Yeah, that just, we all are so much a product of our raising, and particularly, I think, 
it's not something everyone loves to talk about, but how you were um, exposed to sex and your understanding of sex and attraction and gender and all of that is so influential to who you grow up and, and how you end up, you know, experiencing and uh, enjoying uh, sexual things. So I guess... All that to say is that I guess I'm kind of happy that he got exposed to busty Asian beauties because it does eventually, I think, lead to Dean uh, discovering tentacle porn, um, which, Drew, you haven't reached that point yet, but is is in canon and mentioned at multiple points, um, I believe. So, uh, yeah. I I had written so much stuff out, and I definitely have missed some of it, but I just hope that by making this connection, um, instead of seeing Bust Asian Beauties as just problematic, because it most definitely is, um, and it is definitely a reflection of the early um, to mid-2000s and even sometimes now media, but it is, at its core, a reflection of John's parenting. Uh, and I am a strong, firm believer in the John Winchester hate. And, uh, I think that, yeah, I just, he's awful. Um, (laughs) I do also think that Dean is queer and I absolutely enjoy and am very validated by this podcast and the work you have done, uh, both of you, in sort of dissecting it. I love a good media dissection um, and having a place where I can go and hear a lot of the thoughts I've had explored more deeply is wonderful. Um, and it is also incredibly validating to have somebody who hasn't watched the entire series start the series from the beginning and see all the stuff that we have been talking about because we are not crazy. They definitely queerbaited us. Uh, and while sometimes it was um, more of a queer coding, like they, uh, and for a lot of the other characters, uh, for Dean, I will argue that it is queer baiting because while there is queer coding they never ever intended to have anything come of it and they just used us for (sighs) views um or ratings as it would have been um yeah that's not a great note to end on um but it is the one i will be ending on so thank you uh for everything you guys have done um and i look forward to hearing way more uh one thing i definitely look forward to hearing is whether or not drew has started four letter word uh and his thoughts on it because that fic was kind of life-changing um yeah cheers uh hope y'all are well that was the most entertaining voicemail. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna let you start. You want to work backwards a little bit. Four letter word. Read the first chapter. I really need to like start carving out some more time. I feel like I have so little time for the things I want to do that like I don't want to say it's like homework, but like any other like side things like picking up a new read. Like I really need to like dedicate a day to like 
Mary's in a flip when I say this. I finally watched Knives Out. What is that movie now? Like a year and a half old? I finally watched it. Knives Out came out in 2019, my dude. My example of how bad I am at keeping up with media that I want to keep up with. But again, it's on the list. I'll get there eventually. I really want to read the rest because I did love that first chapter. You know, I got I got Mary the smut peddler here. I got to I got to get I got I got to enjoy the smut she peddles. Uh, speaking of smut, let's not speak about that. <laughs> I just got to say, Mary and I listen to these voicemails on mute with each other. So the only thing we have is visual <laughs> communication. And I was just like laughing and she's like, I know where you are. That is a tentacle gesture. <laughs> I was like, yep. <laughs> I don't want to say I can't wait to get to that point to figure out what the connection is or how we learn about this from Dean. But I also genuinely am curious to know how this comes up. But all of this, I feel like I've rambled so much. And this is such a good voicemail. It's already such a long episode. I just want to get right to the point. A beautiful voicemail. Very well said. I think there is so much validity in what you said. I agree completely. It makes so much sense with the timeline and what we know of John. And it really is one of those, like, we've discussed before how, again, myself growing up male and cisgendered, there was a lot of my upbringing that I had to unlearn or I had to actively realize was bad to, like, fix because I have a father who, Wall is a great man, very much grew up in that, air quotes, at that time and that generation. Like, there's still things he does that, like, make me cringe. And, like, the only thing to do is to try to educate and get around it. Uh, and I was lucky enough that while I was raised that way, I was able to like unlearn a lot of it or like not let it, you know, affect me in a negative way. Uh, but I think this is where we do see it in Dean is from John. You are right. I have learned that the saying is true. You are just one fake away from unlocking a new kink. <laughs> tell me tell me sorry, sorry. you've seen that tiktok filter of just like that a lot of i think a lot of guys tend to use it where it's like a clip of a woman doing something not implicitly sexual but like very attractive in some way and then it just cuts the guy and then the like little like a pop-up of like new fetish unlocked i mean sure yes <laughs> i haven't seen that that doesn't pop up on my free page <laughs> oh i've gotten a few of them here and there the hetero relationships do not pop up on my feed. Oh, I, I've also seen like the queer version of it too, I'll just say. I really like this idea that like the whole busty Asian beauties actually comes from uh, yeah, a vestige of like John's time in the Vietnam War. I, I had never really put that together and I think it makes a lot of sense. And to kind of address like your comments about sex ed as being lacking uh, in schools, in last semester, I took a class that was called Gender Identity Development, and that was one of the things that we talked about, like the the role of curriculum in schools in like supporting healthy and diverse like gender identity development for for students. Dean was born in what seventy seventy eight. I think he's ten years older than me. Right. Like to begin with. And I was already like I found that in my time in high school, like sex ed, kind of like what you said, Karen, was very like, oh, this one time there was a condom that was put on a banana kind of thing. And that was very lacking. That's the maximum that Dean would have received in terms of sex ed with probably some abstinence. 
teaching, which, you know, if we're looking at the kind of evidence that exists in, in, in the literature, like that is just not enough to be able to teach kids like safe and consensual sex. Sex ed actually starts with very age appropriate, like cons consent, like who you can become, who you want to become friends with. Like it, it start, it should start very young in order to be able to talk about consent within uh, sexual relationships when children become adolescent. So anyway, that's a whole other can of worms, but just to say that like, yes, this is very, very important. And again, the fact that like Sam and Dean moved schools so often probably didn't help with this whole thing because they were probably in conservative areas where it was an abstinence only policy, if at that, right? So that, that definitely has an impact on children in the way that they view their own gender. And I think that what you said about being the right kind of man uh, really comes into play here. So thank you so much for, for bringing all of this up with us. It was a really lovely voicemail. It was phenomenal. Thank you for this one. Do we have any reflections and call to actions this week? Oh, I sure do. So I don't think it's appropriate to say that my reflection this week should be revenge is sweet uh, in reference to Zachariah. That seems like a really negative thing to take a positive note from this episode. There was something else in this episode that I really did click with, and it is that seeing Sam's kind of newfound belief in himself. I know we kind of talked about how he doesn't necessarily exclaim that he has reached this new level of his personhood, but we see it in him. As much as we never uttered the incredibly cheesy line of like, well, you might not believe in me, but I believe in you. I think the more important unspoken line here is that Sam believes in himself. And I think it's just important to remind yourself of that sometimes. You know what? I'm doing really good. I'm really happy. I believe in myself. Like, and I don't think I should be ashamed of that. I don't think I should have to remind myself, but it's good to do once in a while. And just a general vibe of positivity and like realizing your self-worth is important. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. So I'm very much called to action to be, be better to myself in a emotional language type of way. And yourself, my dear, what do you have this week? Honestly, this episode makes me feel called to let go of things that no longer serve me. Like particularly when I when it comes to like the way that I view other people, like allowing people to change and allowing myself to trust them enough to see this change. Um, because I know that I tend to react like Dean a lot of the times where uh, once I have an idea about somebody, like I sort of pigeonhole them uh, into that role uh, in my head. Um, but I, I, I want to be able to let people change or to let people prove that they've changed kind of thing. So I have very focused on like believe in yourself and you very focused on belief in others. And I think that's really wholesome of us. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to our bunker patrons, Katira, Elle, and Jeremiah Thomas for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Karen for their message. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Hive, TikTok, and YouTube using at CarryingWayward, and leave us a rating and review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to CarryingWayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends.
Mwah, mwah. Fluffy. It's just, just a fluffy baby. Just a fluffy baby. Look at him. Just, He's got just the a weird Batman little ears. <laughs> just, just a wee little Batman. <laughs> Literally just, just, a wee little Batman. <laughs> like, I'm just saying. Oh That's gosh. who he is. My love, love. Oh, he's making biscuits. Oh, he's he's making biscuits. big biscuits. Look at the biscuits being made. 